Thank you for tuning in to the best parenting show on the internet. Post Daily Dose. Hey there, everybody. This is Christy Saul, the co-founder of the Post Institute, coming at you live tonight for another episode of Post Daily Dose. I always want to plug these two fabulous books by Brian Post, From Fear to Love and The Great Behavior Breakdown. If you don't have this book yet, you can get it on promotion at feartolovebook.com. This is uh, designed to be a very easy read and it will help you understand the impact of trauma on brain development. Uh, it'll help you understand the womb experience a little bit. It'll help you understand some of the more challenging behaviors that children have as and people that people have as a result of trauma and, and it will help you understand um, this parenting model that we teach here at the Post Institute. So I strongly encourage it. I know several adoption and foster agencies who buy these by the cases um, and they encourage their families to read them and it's a great book to go back and make reference to. So again, it's on promotion for $7.95 feartolovebook.com. So thank you for my uh, little advertisement there. I hope you guys are having a fabulous evening. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about the subconscious. Um, there was a graphic shared um, today that says something about, um, mm -mm -mm -mm. I'm trying to remember what it says. It's the one in the circle. It says something like, um, we all have to deal with the consequences of our choices or something like that. And then under it, it explains that not everyone has access to making conscious choices, especially during times of stress. So what we have learned from the field of neuroscience is there's this thing, this experience called the amygdala hijack. And so if you are not familiar with the term amygdala hijack, I strongly encourage you check that out. Um, basically, there's this part in our brain called the amygdala, and it is responsible for sensing stress, overwhelm, distress. Um, it's the part of the brain that for babies, when they experience distress and dis-ease, or they have a need, it gets triggered, a little spark comes up, and it sends out this hormone called cortisol, and the baby cries. And different people have different levels of sensitivity in their amygdala. It is said by the field of neuroscience that the temperament of the amygdala, whether or not how sensitive it is, is very much connected to the womb experience. Um, that in the last trimester of pregnancy, specifically when the placenta is thinned and preparing the baby's being prepared for birth, that because of the thin placenta, the hormones that the mother is experiencing flow from the mother to the baby. So if we're talking about a high stress situation, a high, that high level of stress act, activates more cortisol in the mother's brain and that cortisol flows to the baby. And the result of that is a more sensitive amygdala. So what does that all have to do with the subconscious and choice and choice theory and these ideas that, um, you know, you should have just made a better choice. <laughs> well, the thing is, um, 
as we proceed with understanding more and more about brain development, there's this other piece called the subconscious and uh, probably one of the very best people to learn from with regards to the subconscious is a neurobiologist from, I think he's from Australia or New Zealand, I'm not sure which, his name is Dr. Bruce Lipton. Um, and he does a really great job. You know, it's interesting when you talk or listen to people who talk about what they know and they talk about it all the time, that it's just very fluid. And so he just gives these very fluid, um, this very fluid understanding of how the subconscious is developed. And basically from birth until around age, you know, five, six, the brain is just collecting all this data. He, he kind of talks about it in this way that is comparable to talking about how we understand computers. And so the brain is just collecting all of this data all for the purpose of survival. And so, you know, language is being developed and they're watching us all the time. They're watching us all the time. They're listening to us all the time. They're listening to the environment. And in that, they learn what they need to do at a subconscious level in order to survive the environment. And so what does that all have to do with this idea of choice theory? Well, first of all, because of how the subconscious is created and developed, it gives us these abilities to sort of function on autopilot. Um, and then to bring in the part about speaking about the amygdala and the amygdala hijack. So the amygdala's job is to help a person survive, to help a person be safe. And so the amygdala gets flipped and a person is reacting. Um, an amygdala hijack basically is when your emotional reactivity is out of balance compared to the amount of threat that is in the environment. But the subconscious is part of what tells us what's threatening and what's not. So if you grew up in an environment where there is a lot of domestic violence, where there's abuse, where there's neglect, then that information is stored in the subconscious. And then there become these little connections, right? These connections get made that say, when this is happening, the subconscious picks up this vibration, this noise, this smell, this temperature. It could be anything received from any of the senses. And the subconscious says, oh, that means something bad is getting ready to happen. And then the amygdala goes, and then we have a fight, flight, or freeze reaction. And others have also added the word fawn, which is the um, desire to make friends with out of the need to protect. And so um, when you think about attachment theory and people talk about indiscriminate attachment and you think about children who will just walk up to anyone, then there's an element that says, I can be, if I befriend you, then that will keep me safe. So it's not coming from an authentic place of desire for a relationship but that fawn piece. So let's go ahead and include that in our Fs, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. So this graphic talks about the, the fact that not everyone in every situation has the ability to activate their conscious brain to activate the ability to make an active choice. We all, according to Bruce Lipton, function out of our subconscious at least uh, at approximately 99% of the time. So 99% of the time, we're not really consciously aware of what we're doing. 
So that zero to around five and six is really, really important. And as adults, it's really important for us to begin to notice what we're doing. You know, we don't always even notice our facial expressions, our body language, all of that's being, that's just information that's being com communicated from a subconscious place in our brain. So when you notice you might be standing like this, you might have your face held in a certain position or your tone of voice, then that is all stuff that's related to your subconscious. Lynn says, wow, you are speaking about my son. So this is, it is, it's really important for us to understand this because we can assign a lot of negative intention and we can also put a lot of pressure on them about choice when it is out of their grasp in the moment. Now, um, I went through a particularly stressful time in my life about 10 years ago. And during that very stressful time, I noticed several things. Like I noticed that I could be sitting in front of my computer to work and literally not feel present. I remember driving my child, which now I look back and I'm like, that was actually kind of dangerous, but thank God my subconscious is well-trained for driving now after doing it for so many years. But I looked up, I was supposed to be taken under school and I was taken to, taking us to our old house. I don't even know why, but it was because my brain was so overwhelmed with stress hormones that I could not think clearly. Brian always reminds us that when we're in that heightened state of stress that our short-term memory is absence and our thinking becomes distorted and confused. And the reality is, this is just, you know, this was a, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I don't ever like to do that, like comparing traumas, but in the grand scheme of things, my experience was really like a blip, you know, not, it's not wasn't that big a deal compared to some of the things that other people are surviving. So when we understand what might be going on for them at the brain level and how the hijacked amygdala, the subconscious and all the triggers that could be uh, around us in terms of any of the five senses can be taking in something that would be triggering. And Brian even reminds us that internal internal experiences such as digestion can also be a trigger even having the experience of having a need can be a trigger because sometimes people have a need and even asking for it to be met has been punished and so simply having a need creates a level of stress and anxiety internally that can create the same fight, flight, freeze, and fawn behaviors that we've been talking about. So when we start talking about, you know, you should have just made a better choice. Well, in that moment, depending on their emotional and the state of their, of their mind-body system, they, that may not have actually been accessible to them. Their conscious ability to choose something different may not have even been available to them at a biological level. That's why this parenting model talks so much about creating calm, creating calm at the brain level or whatever. And when I say creating calm at the brain level, it's about um, that space where they're able to function their best and being able to know when they've had enough being able to know when they're outside of their window of stress tolerance because when they're outside of that window of tolerance, then that conscious mind, their ability to choose is is lost. Um, 
there was something in that that I wanted to come back to or that, oh, so what that made me think of <laughs> also is, so we can go to therapy and, and we can go to classes like anger management classes and things like that. And we can learn all these skills. We can learn it in one place. But the difficulty in applying it outside of that setting, applying it in a real life moment, the reason it's difficult is because of all those things that I just explained, because our brains get so overwhelmed with those stress hormones that our thinking becomes distorted and confused and it becomes very difficult for us to have active choice. So we think about that with our kids. Now let's think about that for ourselves. Like you can listen to this parenting paradigm and you can read the book, Repetition, Repetition, Repetition Helps. Like the repetition of practicing deep breathing, the more you practice it, the more available that's going to be to you when you're stressed out. The more you practice quieting your mind, quieting your thoughts, quieting your emotions, the more you practice that the easier it becomes to access. But until you've had practice at it, just learning it, just reading one book or even five books, just you know, taking in a whole bunch of information isn't going to equip you with the ability to learn how to, with the ability to choose to use it in that situation because we all have an amygdala, we all have a subconscious, all of us can have our lids be flipped. And in that moment, we can all go into a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn mode, all for the purpose of survival. All these things that we talk about in our neurobiology are all things that are, it's like the perfect creation for the purpose of survival. Um, when I think about that one little experience that lasted for a relatively short period of time and what that feel, felt like to me, um, one of the things that came from it that I felt like was so incredible was to have the ability. It was like getting a tiny little taste of what our children experience so often, that feeling of just being plugged in all of the time, that feeling of vigilance. And so you think about that and you think about, okay, so... When my kid's sitting there watching TV or playing their game and I come in and I say, even in my loving tone, it's time to take out the trash or it's time to come eat. And you catch all of that attitude and all of that dysregulation. What's happening is they are, they're like in a, they may even be in a, dif, a disassociated state. So the free state is this kind of place in the brain where they're really frozen. They're really locked and they can't move out of it. And for some, that's actually disassociation. So they may look like they're playing a game. They may look like they're looking at their phone and they may be, but they may not be consciously really plugged into that. I mean, they may, they may not be, but something to think about, something to consider is that they may be sitting there in sort of a disassociated state that their brains have come, have gotten conditioned to just really disconnect out of survival out of you know it's like a survival mechanism that in different states that they're just like they're just really not present in their body um i see that the other thing i see with that is like forgetfulness like um 
being around kids, uh, especially teenagers and that adolescence, that, you know, adolescent and teen age where they're being invited into these higher levels of responsibility. So, you know, like in the public school system in sixth grade, when you're now moving from class to class, you're responsible for keeping up with your books, you're responsible for what's in your backpack, you're responsible for what's in your locker, you're responsible for getting your homework home. Do you see now why that's difficult for those kids? Because sometimes they're walking around and you, you know, they're interacting, but they're interacting from all this subconscious place. They're not really consciously aware of what they're doing. They set something down and they have no idea they even set it down. So therefore, they don't even know where it is. So I can't find my shoes. I can't find my car keys. I can't, all the I cannot finds, I cannot finds. Oftentimes, if you find yourself losing things a lot, <laughs> it may be that you're not really present. You're not really present in your body when you're going through your daily activities. So that makes it very difficult to remember where you set something, where you left something, what you did, you know, two hours ago. So there's a lot more to what's going on with us and with our children than just this idea of being um, strong-spirited or having a, a, a vicious demeanor or having ill will. We can assign a lot of negative intentions to people when we don't understand the bigger picture of what's going on in the mind-body system. So I hope there's something helpful for you guys out of that. Lynn, thank you for sharing. Andrea says it's so important to attune to our kids. Yes, it is. It is. And, um, you know, I, Brian and I both often use the phrase of slowing things down the slowing things down is really in our thought processes. It may not be in our physical activity. The physical activity and the physical pace of your life is really going to be more about matching what your children need. Some children do literally need things to be slowed down. Oftentimes, like, I mean, myself as an example, I came from a very active family. We were always going and doing and going and doing it. And that was fun. And I liked it. That was a fun lifestyle to grow up in. But that was not my daughter's pace. So I had to really bring that back. I had to really listen to her emotions, listen to her behavior. That was how she communicated. And so listening to her emotions and her behavior became a very good compass for me to know what our lifestyle pace needed to be. Jessica says, how do you get a, ch a child out of stuck? Well, uh, it kind of depends on the stuck and what it looks like. But um, one thing to know is that our skin is our largest organ and it is, for many, our, um, our most direct way to create soothing. So I know that some people, it has to be safe. It has to be safe, loving touch. And so sometimes just a touch, just a touch on the shoulder and give them a minute. You know, it's almost like, imagine, imagine if you were working, I mean, let's just talk about maybe like the geriatric population. You know, you wouldn't run into a 95-year-old person's room and say, hey, get up and take dragon, you know? And so maybe just having that kind of gentleness and to introduce your energy into the environment, it could just mean walking into the room and pausing for a minute and then walking over and touching them on the shoulder. You know, there's, 
it could be, uh, even if I turn up music in the car, if they are in a quiet mode, can be very disruptive for them. Andrea, that's such good awareness. Yes. Right. It's like it startles them. It's like a startle response because they're kind of disassociated in their own place, in their own, lost in their subconscious. And so, you know, these are so, that's such good, these are such good things for you guys to notice. Um for me, you know, touch is like that direct pathway to help them get unstuck. And so every person is different. And so you kind of have to know and explore. So Jessica, you want to go through like a, a, a gentle exploration of what may help things. She just acts as she gets stuck and can't move or change the position she's in. So she really gets frozen. And it sounds like in that space, she's also really disassociated. Um, one of the things I would really recommend for you guys, depending on kind of the relationship and where you all are at, um, I'm going to give you three steps. The first step is spend time wherever she nests when she's not there. So like go into her room when she's not there and get reacquainted with her at a soulful level. We're going to start trying to get behind her lens so you can understand her and how she sees the world and how she experiences the world. So just going into her environment. The other thing that you're doing is you're injecting your energy there. So you want to just go and sit there in that space. Notice what comes up for you. Um, I've had some parents who had just kind of a real... Um, Ooh, like that all of their sorrow and fears for their child came up because the room was like super messy and really nasty. And it was like, man, I, like I so don't like this environment. But you just keep going back to it until you get comfortable because you need to know your child intimately. And so being able to just look in their environment and really imagine what they're experiencing when they're there by themselves. So that's a place to start. The other thing is to make sure you take some time for that time in. 10-20-10 is a, a recommendation that we've made from forever. And this is a recommendation that Brian created. It's almost like an affection, affection prescription. So 10 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes after any significant separation or when you feel it's needed, and 10 minutes at night. And this is time when you're just focused on them, just it's not teaching time. It's just time when your energy is connecting with them from that deep loving place, almost as if they were infants again. And you just were just marveling at the wonderful creation that's before you. So as much touch as you can incorporate during that time in, as long as it feels safe to them, um, because then what we're doing is we're helping to build the oxytocin response. All that nurturing that we do with infants, the bottle feeding, the eye contact, the cooing, that helps build a part of the brain called the oxytocin release mechanism. And so because she gets so frozen, it tells me that um, when she has an amygdala hijack and it may not take much, just a little, just a little something and she's really frozen. And so by increasing the oxytocin release, I think you're going to experience a bit more thaw from her. And that is when you do that consistently uh, uh, over about six weeks, you should begin to see some shifts 
And I've had parents who have seen complete elimination of behaviors like stealing, stealing at school by never even really addressing the stealing, but by increasing their time in, by increasing their sense of safety and security, and by getting that oxytocin flowing more adequately, you'll see definite shifts. Um, Lynn says, we see lots of hypervigilance, yes. And it's all from that. Um, it's interesting how frequently hyperactivity and hypervigilance get confused because the behaviors can look very similar. So it sounds like um, sometimes uh, I just want to encourage you guys that if you feel those, that hypersensitivity, and if you feel that real frozenness, that it is okay to go back to earlier ways of parenting. If your child needs to be held in your lap, I don't care how old they are, there is no age limit for the need for that level of comfort and the ability for that level of comfort to create super healing. If, if they feel infant-like to you, it's okay to bottle feed them, even if they're 13. If that's what you sense that your child is needing, it is okay. Is touch the only way to increase oxytocin, Jessica asked. No, ma'am, it is not. Um, there are lots of ways. In fact, what we're doing right now is a way to increase oxytocin. If we were even on Zoom and we were having good eye contact with each other and it was a good regulated conversation, we were getting our social emotional needs met, then that would also help increase oxytocin. Music can help increase oxytocin. Um, fresh air, a nice walk, dancing, um, physical activity can be a good release. You know, it's kind of different for different people. Loving touch and embrace, eye contact, all of those things that we think of as nurturing. Um, as a single parent, I will also say that I have to really focus on my oxytocin levels so that I have enough. So for me, meditation is extremely helpful. Uh, my weighted blanket is extremely helpful. That compressed feeling, I love that compressed feeling. So every avenue that we talk about as an avenue for a trigger can also be an avenue of soothing. It just depends on the person. So even um, 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 the olfactories, so there could be some, why can't I think the oils, the essential oils, there could be essential oils that can help increase your oxytocin level. Sunshine, for me, sunshine, nature, all of those things are very helpful to me. Um, movement is very helpful to me. We had to go back to infancy with a couple of ours and we had great results. Oh, Jessica, thank you for sharing that. And you're welcome, you're welcome. So uh, let's close it out for tonight. Um, as Brian reminds us, and in any given moment, we have two choices. Hey, Julie, <laughs> sorry, I just saw someone I want to say I do, random. In any given moment, we have two choices. Hang on, Lynn says she's very guarded. Touch is sometimes very difficult. Um, I always ask first. Sometimes I tell him I just need a hug. That is so good. Um, it can be even sitting next to each other. So, you know, I'm like, if they want to get on your lap, let's get them. I mean, I'm, I'm like, let's get into it. But I know not that's not where everyone is. So um, it might be, 
in that we have to start by building a bridge. It might be that you're sitting together in the same room. Because remember, your energy has the ability to shift the energy. Your calm amygdala has the ability to create calm. Just sitting in their room while they're gaming and you're watching them game. And you're just watching them and you're just looking at them with love. And they might look at you and be like, oh, mom. You know, all of that, all of that helps to build the oxytocin level. Your loving presence alone has tremendous healing power. Um, again, it might, you know, it might start that you're just sitting on the couch together. And then, you know, it might be that you look up and, you know, you might try that thing where you just lay over in their lap and see what they do. Um, it might be that you look up and you've got your feet touching each other on the coffee table. So it may start off little. It may start off little, but it's really all about getting into that rhythmic, that rhythmic experience where you're in the same rhythm together, that attunement. Um, Kim says, spot on, experienced this just today and spent 15 minutes with my 17-year-old and I helped him get unstuck. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. Um, by Ernial, by Ernal, by Ernal beat sounds, etc. I'm not sure what that is. So I'll Google it and find out. So thank you guys. Thanks for being with me today. Um, remember, in any moment, we have two choices. We can act out of our same blueprints of stress and fear and overwhelm. And I want to remind you guys that those blueprints are often hidden in our subconscious. So that's how it all works. Our own amygdalas get flipped. And we can act out of it. Or we can notice in our body that we're getting tense. We can notice our, our temperament getting a little foul. And we can pause. And we can take one to two to three, maybe ten deep breaths. And we can choose love. So much love to you guys. Uh, when you head to bed tonight, take one moment, one positive moment from your day. And blow that up. We spend so much time focusing on things that we're worried about. Things that aren't going right. And yet, there are so many things in your world that are probably going really well. And the more you focus on the things that you're doing right, it's going to help you overcome those areas where you're struggling. So take something that went well and blow that up in your mind. Blow that up in your mind. Focus on that so that tomorrow you can start off being the best version of yourself. Much love to you guys. Uh, we love you all. We appreciate all that you do day in and day out to create healing for your families. And we'll see you tomorrow.